0: Philadelphia and Boston often hog the limelight when it comes to Revolutionary War history, but New York City also played a significant role during that era. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest today is Karen Quinones. She brings history to life as the owner and historian of Patriot Tours. Karen joins me in the studio to talk about New York City's revolutionary past, including her new walking tour that explores the role espionage played during the Revolutionary War. Karen, thanks so much for coming in.
1: Thank you for having me, George. It's always fantastic to come up from Lower Manhattan to see you.
0: So to what do you attribute your interest in revolutionary era New York City?
1: Well, you know, it's something that has been on my mind since I was about 14 years old, if you can believe it. And in my teens, I kind of pursued it. And then I went to work and had a long career. And then I took time off from that career for stress and kind of got back to it and started reading all of these original documents from the time period. And when I saw those original documents and and those early arguments about what was going on, I was just sucked in now for life.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up upstate in Binghamton, New York.
0: And how much did you know about New York City when you came down here?
1: A tremendous amount. You know, more than most people I knew who were born here.
0: (laughs) Now, how long have you been doing Patriot tours?
1: Since 2005. This is my 13th year.
0: What inspired you to start a tour company?
1: It was a Wall Street friend from my other career. I had taken about two years off reading all of these documents. I was about to go back to work. I had lunch with him. And he said, hey, instead of coming back to work, you should start a tour. And I figured nobody would ever come on the tour. And he said, well, you know, if no one comes, you have a job. If someone comes, maybe you have, you know, a new door opening for the rest of your life. And that's exactly what happened.
0: So what would you say fascinated you most about this time period?
1: the documents and publications and the way people lived. And the only way I could find to connect with that was to read what they wrote, you know, to read the newspapers, look at the classified ads, what did people buy? Where did they shop? What was the news? What did they think was important? All of that kind of stuff. I was really just fascinated with what would it be like to be standing on these streets, say, in 1776.
0: So what was it like to be standing on the streets of lower Manhattan back then?
1: Well, what's really cool is in some ways, it would be just like today and in other ways a completely different world you know because it was so long ago it was a a rural area so it's really like being in the country it's a very small town but similar to today there were people in the city from everywhere speaking different languages practicing different religions all living all mashed in together and it was reasonably crowded everyone was crowded down on that little tip of the island so i think in that way it's very familiar
0: how much still stands from that era
1: One intact building, which is St. Paul's Chapel at Broadway and Vesey Street, built in 1766. A couple of foundations and one wall of the Francis Tavern at Broad and Pearl Streets.
0: Francis Tavern, that's where George Washington gave his farewell address, right? It is,
1: and it's a great place for everyone to visit and see where he did that.
0: How did you go about putting together your tour?
1: You know, it was really interesting. I had sort of a time period that I wanted to talk about from something called the Stamp Act, which is when the colonies got together against the king, um, through the war itself, because during the war we're occupied by the British. So I just really wanted to get into New York City. So I kind of had a time period, and I spent a couple years researching everything that went on. It's about a 10-year period. Taking notes, then picking the events I thought were most interesting, but more importantly than the events, finding the people to talk about. Picking people who were regular New Yorkers, you know, not people you hear about in history books, but just regular people living in the town who did this extraordinary stuff that's long forgotten. And I think that's what's made the tour a hit.
0: Who are among those individuals?
1: Um, Well, if you're familiar with uh, Greenwich Village, Alexander McDougall. A peasant kid from Scotland who rose to be a great self-made man, leader of the Sons of Liberty and commander in the Revolutionary War. Um, another guy, John Lamb, whose parents were indentured servants. He became a wine merchant, a commander, actually was Alexander Hamilton's commander in the Revolutionary War. And a couple printers we've never heard of who printed really radical stuff at the risk of being thrown in jail.
0: So you started with one tour, but now you have more than one, right?
1: Yes, yes. A few years ago, I added a tour specifically about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr.
0: Now, was this before the Hamilton Broadway craze?
1: It was just before. um, I'll tell you, I got tipped off by a friend of mine who's a historian Um, He saw the play when it was off-Broadway and thought it was going to be a hit, and he kind of nudged me on to put together a tour. And this is the historical Hamilton and Burr, so it's a little different from the musical, which is fantastic. Um, But it really gets into who they were as men, family men, professional men, politicians, and the weird events that led to the duel in 1804.
0: Now, Hamilton is actually buried in Lower Manhattan, right, right? and
1: that's the last stop on the tour is Hamilton's grave.
0: Where is that exactly?
1: Uh, Trinity Church Graveyard.
0: Trinity Church is now undergoing major renovation.
1: They just closed for two years. They're but, keeping the graveyard open. I
0: was going to say, but you can still visit Hamilton. Yes, yes. What part of that Hamilton story fascinates you the most?
1: Oh, man, it, he's just such a fascinating guy because, you know, Hamilton wasn't a native New Yorker, so like me and many other people, he came here young and kind of reinvented himself, you know, was free to create the person he wanted to be. So that always made him very interesting to me, the way he did that. His whole life is fascinating, but I think one of the most incredible things about him is actually something that Aaron Burr said, and he said that when um, Hamilton was on Washington's staff, that he often was the smartest guy in the world, but because all of the other guys had noble birth or something else that Washington liked about them, they would never listen to him, and Burr said, "I, I I don't know how long he dealt with that. You know, I wouldn't have been able to stand that. So again, being, you know, this young, smart guy, kind of working his way up to the respect he ultimately received.
0: What did the musical do for your tours? Oh, it was
1: amazing. I, you know, and I get all kinds of people on my tour. So I get, you know, the hardcore history people who want to know the story and I get zillions of teenage girls. (laughs) Who are either in love with Hamilton or his son Philip or his friend John Lawrence or Hercules Mulligan or one of these other characters from the time. But that's been really terrific because it gets these young girls on the tour and I get them interested in learning more history.
0: I was going to say how wonderful, right, that a Broadway musical can get people so interested in history.
1: Right. And, you know, a spinoff from them that I don't think I told you is that I just signed a contract to write a book about Aaron Burr's daughter, Theodosia Burr, for a young adult audience, a teen audience. That's
0: fantastic. Yeah. What can you tell us about her?
1: She's an exceptional young woman. She was a brilliant prodigy like her father. And her father had her educated as if he were she were his son. Um, you know, at that time girls weren't admitted to college. Burr was a graduate of Princeton. He brought professors from Princeton to New York to educate his daughter. So she is the first formally and fully educated woman in American history.
0: What did she do?
1: She didn't do anything. She died in a shipwreck just short of her thirtieth birthday.
0: Unbelievable. Yeah.
1: It's an amazing story.
0: How did you uncover that story?
1: That was when I was doing my research about Burr for the Hamilton and Burr tour, and I was reading through his personal papers, and I started coming across letters to his wife and his daughter, and I said, well, these letters are really radical for the time. Who is this this girl? And then I started researching her, and amazingly, an editor came on my Hamilton and Burr tour and asked me if I would be interested in writing a book about her.
0: That's fantastic. If you could ask her a question, what would it be?
1: Oh, it would be, what was it like to sit in a room with men like John Adams, James Madison, your father, Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, and all of these great men who she met?
0: Incredible. You have a brand new tour now, a spy tour.
1: I do. It's about how Lower Manhattan was crawling with spies during the American Revolution.
0: Crawling with spies. They were everywhere. Really? (laughs) Now there is... A spy ring that you specifically focus on called the Culper spy ring?
1: Yes, it is. It was a spy ring that was kind of accidentally started by one of Washington's officers, a guy from the North Shore of Long Island named Benjamin Talmadge. When all of their efforts at spying on the British failed, Talmadge realized he could use his friends out in the North Shore in Setauket to pass him information. And that grew into a much larger spy ring that eventually operated right within occupied New York City under the noses of the British command.
0: So how did this spy ring operate here?
1: Oh, it was great. But they, some of them knew each other. Some of them didn't. Um, they passed messages back and forth. But the most incredible thing they did was they had a guy who rode on his horse from lower Manhattan, you know, New York City where Wall Street would be, along the north shore of Long Island, 65 miles to Setauket, where they had this wild Irish friend named Caleb Brewster, who would get in his boat, take the message across the Long Island Sound to Connecticut, and give them to his friend Ben Talmage, who would then look through all of these messages, and whatever was important would be passed on to George Washington.
0: Now, how did they communicate incognito, if you will?
1: It's great. They all had spy names. And they had code names, right? So the, the first guy recruited into the ring was Samuel Culper, they called him. And he was Abraham Woodhall from Setauket. And so he's the first one to come in. The next one is Culper Jr., who's from Oyster Bay, but he's in New York City. He's a merchant named Robert Townsend. And then other guys are coming in. They use the generic term 355 for various women. And um, they had code numbers for people and code numbers for places.
0: Where does the name Culper come from?
1: Washington wanted to call them the Culpeper Spiring because that was the county he lived in in Virginia. But they said, oh, that's just too long. And it got shortened to Culper.
0: (laughs) Now, you referenced 355. Mm -hmm. Was that a name given to all the women or one woman specifically?
1: They used it for all women. But in American history, it's usually remembered as one woman whose identity is still unknown today, who passed on the intelligence that Benedict Arnold was a traitor. Wow. Yeah, big intelligence.
0: Now, I understand that they used to communicate in code. In fact, they actually even used invisible ink as well?
1: Yes, invented by John Jay, early governor of our state and chief justice of the Supreme Court, invented by his brother James.
0: Incredible. Yeah. James lost a history pretty much otherwise. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I, I never knew it was it, it was he who invented it. And they, they wrote in, I don't know what they wrote in, and then they used some sort of agent that they washed the paper with, and the letters would come up so they would write it in between the lines of a legitimate letter.
0: Who were among the other chief operators of this spy rank? Well,
1: now famous from the musical, Hercules Mulligan the Tailor is another operator. Another shocking operator is James Rivington, who was one of the most hated men in America. He seemed to be a loyalist. He published the official King's newspaper, the Royal Gazette, during the war, um, was close to all of the British officers, published all of the Crown's propaganda. And at the very end of the war, it was revealed that he was number 726 in the spy ring. Hmm. A shocker.
0: What was George Washington's role in all of this?
1: Washington collected the inf- got the information. I mean, the guy who really ran it was Benjamin Talmadge, who had to kind of manage the personalities of all of these people. For instance, Abraham Woodhull Culper Sr. was very careful and constantly spooked and afraid he was going to get captured and thrown in jail. Hercules Mulligan was an extremely garrulous Irishman right larger than life guy and when he found out Mulligan had been recruited into the ring he was so terrified he went to bed for three days and wouldn't come out of his house (laughs) so Talmadge is managing all of these personalities Caleb Brewster who's a big brawler and ready for a fight at any time and he's really managing all of them incredibly successfully for a guy who's kind of like learning this as he goes along.
0: What would have been the fate of a spy caught by the British? Death. Death.
1: Yeah, hanging. We did the same thing. And, and a lot of times, you know, a lot of times, kind of honestly about the Americans, some of our generals didn't even give someone a trial. They just thought they were a spy and hang them right on the spot.
0: Was there a jail somewhere in New York City where they would be put first?
1: There was in New York. There was a famous jail called the Provost Jail. Um, it was where City Hall Park is today. And Hercules Mulligan did a few stints in that jail. He was arrested a few times. And because he was such a good talker, he talked his way out every time.
0: What were, among some of the other things, the spy ring uncovered?
1: They uncovered all kinds of neat stuff. They sent Washington a copy of the Royal Navy signal book so they would know the signals between ships. They tipped off Washington that the British had... um, the money they made continental dollars from, the paper, I'm sorry, they made continental dollars from, and we're going to counterfeit those dollars. And I even saw an ad in the newspaper where you could go into the print shop and pick up the continental dollars, and they encu- uh, encouraged you to go out of New York City and spend them among, you know, the patriots, pay your taxes and everything with them. They uncovered that plot, and they uncovered um, the knowledge that the British knew that the French were arriving, the French fleet and the French army, and were a about to head them off before they got to Rhode Island. That information was passed on to Lafayette. Um, so they they um, carried some really important information.
0: What was your research process like for putting this tour together?
1: It was incredibly hard. Um, I never even thought of it for years. You know, I knew about this spying, but documentation was incredibly hard to come by. And recently the Library of Congress in Washington has digitized All of these letters and papers from Washington and Talmadge personal papers. So in the last few years, the actual letters they wrote have become available, um, pages from the code book Benjamin Talmadge kept, and um, an author named Alexander Rose wrote a wonderful book about it called Washington Spies, where he put the whole story together.
0: What's the story behind the so-called holy ground in Lower Manhattan?
1: Holy ground. Well, we talked about St. Paul's, right, being this beautiful old colonial church. And the space around St. Paul's um, was all brothels. And those brothels were a part of something called the Holy Ground. Um, The church owned all of the land the brothels were on. So amazingly, the brothels paid rent to the Church of England. And um, it was the most notorious red light district in all of North America. 500 women working the brothels. Pawn shops, taverns, and I even recently found out the equivalent of, um, like, 99-cent stores. The um, merchants in New York, when they had overstock, guys would buy it up and they would sell it in these, you know, similar to overstock stores in the holy ground.
0: What's on the holy ground today?
1: Um, Some of the most beautiful new office buildings you could imagine, including One World Trade Center and the beautiful new
0: Oculus. What can you tell us about Nathan Hale and his role in this spy ring?
1: Nathan Hale is the first spy that Washington deploys in the fall of 1776 to try to find out what the English are up to. And he's really a horrible spy. He's a big guy. He's like six feet tall, which is like five inches taller than most guys at that time. Um, He's very athletic, and everyone said he couldn't lie to save his life. Well, he wanted to help out Washington. He volunteered to spy, and he got caught almost immediately by a notorious figure called Robert Rogers. Um, He was then hanged um, the next day by General William Howe. And, of course, we remember that story that they asked him, do you have any last words? And he got up and he said, my one regret is that I have but one life to lose for my country. And, you know, if you think about that, even if he did say it, would the British want us to know? <laughs> so, you know, we don't really know what happened at his hanging. But the British did leave his body hanging for three days wow. with a cutout of a, of a soldier in wood next to him called George Washington and then just threw his body in the trash. And uh, Benjamin Talmadge was his best friend. And that kind of spurred Talmadge on to try to find a better way to spy.
0: Now you mentioned I think that three five five is the one that gave up Benedict Arnold, yes. right? What more can you tell us about that story of Benedict Arnold?
1: Well, you know, the other spy master in our story, John Andre, the British spy master, is the guy who turned Benedict Arnold. And um, Arnold would not do a deal with Andre unless he went to see him in person. So Arnold at that time was the commander of the fort at West Point. His wife and baby were living there with him. And Andre headed up to get Benedict Arnold to sign the deal. He was going to get 20,000 British pounds to deliver West Point and himself. And 10,000, if only it was Arnold. So Andre goes up there. And just as Andre's, right after Andre meets with Arnold, Washington gets the note that Arnold is a traitor. And right about the same time, Arnold finds out Andre's been captured. And Arnold gets away with minutes to spare and gets back down into New York City. But Andre is captured. And Talmadge eventually finds out who he is. And um, Andre was hanged in Tappan, New York. Um, in 1780 as a spy similar to Nathan Hale.
0: Now, you mentioned that the one structure that still stands is St. Paul's, right? Yes. Where else do you take people on this tour to immerse them in this history?
1: Well, we start on the commons where City Hall is um, because that's a great place to just gather and talk. Plus, the Sons of Liberty met there, so we're going to talk a little bit about Hercules Mulligan and the Sons of Liberty. And, of course, we go around St. Paul's and talk about the holy ground. And then we head over into those... Real little crowded streets down by Water Street or the docks. That's where all the little shops and businesses were where these spies operated. So we weave through those little streets, and with some prints from the time and some descriptions, we try to imagine what it was like to be there then.
0: Now, of course, we're off the grid when we get into Lower Manhattan, sure. right? What can you tell us about the history of some of those street names?
1: Some of the street names are neat. Pearl Street literally was the shore of the East River at one time. The Dutch called it Pearl. They said when they arrived, the um, oyster shells from the oyster beds sparkled like pearls, so they called it Pearl Street. On our tour, we're going to call it Queen Street, which is what the British called it. And then after the war, we put the name back to Pearl Street. So that's there. Um, we, of course, have Wall Street, from the old wall that was built there by the Dutch at the northern end of New Amsterdam. We have Stone Street, believed to have been the first street laid by the Dutch. Broadway, literally the broad way, the widest and main street of the town. And you might also know a little bit north of where I do the tour on the Lower East Side, Rivington Street for James Rivington, the printer.
0: There's also Maiden Lane that has a story as well.
1: Maiden Lane has a great story. No one knows if it's true. Likely made up by Washington Irving, um, that Maiden Lane was named for the buxom young beauties who washed their clothes in the um, stream that ran through there, that the Dutch would go up and eat their lunch and watch the beautiful girls wash their clothes, thus the Maiden Lane.
0: Now, you referenced City Hall. When was City Hall first erected in that location?
1: Around 1811. So that's post the time period we're talking about. During the time we're talking about, that was a British Army barracks. And there were two jails up there, the Provost Jail and the Bridewell.
0: There's a pole in that area of significance. What's the story there?
1: That's the Liberty Pole. That the New York Historical Society placed there, and that commemorates five polls that stood for 10 years before the Declaration of Independence, liberty polls, and they were the center for the protesting against the crown leading up to the Revolutionary War.
0: Who were among the prominent pastors during this time period?
1: Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. There's Reverend Ock from Trinity Church. There's Reverend Shawkirk from the Moravian Church. And Shawkirk kept great detailed diaries about his life and lived in New York throughout the British occupation. So he is a great source for information on what was going on.
0: So we talked about Rivington Street, of course, named after James Rivington. What more can you tell us about him and his life here?
1: Well, Rivington was a printer, um, but during the British occupation of the town, um, he also opened a coffee house. He got a bunch of investors together, and the coffee house became incredibly popular for British officers during that time. And I was reading that they would hang out there in the morning, and they loved to gossip about who spent the night with whom the night before. And that Rivington was known to hand out a free meal for whoever had the best gossip. Well, also in the coffee house, a regular table was set up for the commander of the military, um, Sir Henry Clinton. And working in that coffee house was an investor that man named Robert Townsend, Culper Jr. And this is where Townsend got a lot of his information, working very quietly waiting tables in the coffee house, collecting what he found out and passing it on. But Rivington's coffeehouse was definitely the hotbed for good rumors, you know, tasty tidbits of what was going on in the town. And Rivington himself was very eccentric. He was a big guy. He wore these long brocade jackets, very flamboyant, and everybody loved the guy. Well, I guess if you were on the British side, you did.
0: We referenced Francis' Tavern, of course, a hangout for George yes. Washington. Tell us more about Francis' Tavern.
1: Before the Revolutionary War, it was called the Queen's Head Tavern, owned by Sam Francis. It was the meeting place for the New York Sons of Liberty. So we'd have found, you would have found guys like Hercules Mulligan, Alexander McDougall, John Lamb, Isaac Sears all those guys meeting in the Queen's Head Tavern, planning their various nefarious activities around the town. Um, During the war, it was used by the British. After the war, returned to Sam Francis. He reopened it as the Francis Tavern, and Sam Francis was a good friend of George Washington's, and Washington chose his tavern to give his farewell address at the end of his service as commander-in-chief.
0: Are there other haunts worth noting in Lower Manhattan?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, right across from Francis Tavern, under thick glass in the Cobblestone Plaza is the foundation of a tavern from the 1690s, um, Governor Lovelace Tavern. That's a really cool spot to see. And along Stone Street, right nearby. All buildings from the 1830s, really beautiful street to walk on and have lunch. And at the end of Stone Street, one of our very first brownstone structures built in the 1840s by the Hanover Banking Company called India House. So the whole area through there is full of interesting things. You can pretty much walk down any street and find something notable.
0: Now, we talked about 355, an unnamed woman there, obviously other women involved in the spy ring. But who are some of the other women during this time period worth noting?
1: Probably the most well-known woman was Anna Strong. Anna Strong was another woman from Setauket. She used the 355 number as well. Now... If for, for people who are listening who watched Turn on American Movie Classics or Netflix, um, on that, Abraham Woodhull is already married. But in reality, he was a single man. When he would take his trips into New York, he would bring his neighbor, Anna Strong, with him. Because if you came in as husband and wife, you didn't undergo such rigorous inspection by the British. So she often traveled with him, posing as his wife, and would stay with him in New York City, help collect intelligence, and pass it on when they got to Setauket. So she's a key man. And you know, there's a key woman who worked for the other side, who um, spied for the British. Who was that? Anne Bates from Philadelphia, whose wife was a British officer. She was a very smart merchant woman, and she dressed up like a peddler, took her wares right into Washington's encampment, would set up a little tent and sell stuff to the people in the camp, collecting all the information she could. For some reason, she also had a brilliant mind for artillery. She knew every type of weapon, every type of cannon, and every type of ammunition. She didn't write anything down. She had an excellent memory. She would remember all of it, leave the camp. She'd say, oh, I have to go get more supplies. She would leave, go meet with her husband or one of his friends, tell them everything she found out, and head right back to Washington's camp. There were times she was right in Washington's command tent while they were discussing operations. And eventually, one of Washington's men became suspicious of her, and they kept her out of the tent. But she got a ton of information for the British, and uh, was never caught. Probably their most successful spy, Ann Bates.
0: How active was Martha? Washington.
1: Martha was like one of those ladies. She went with George. She helped uh, dress wounds. She helped feed and comfort the soldiers and really kind of helped boost their morale. You know, today our wives never travel with the soldiers, but at that time they did. And even in occupied New York, there were 1,500 wives and 800 children of the officers and soldiers that were stationed there. So it wasn't unusual to see a huge camp following a an army around, filled with wives and children. I, I was stunned when I found that out. I thought that was the weirdest thing.
0: Have you ever had opportunity to talk to descendants of anyone who occupied Lower Manhattan?
1: I do. I get descendants on my tour all the time, descendants of commanders, um Descendants, I've made friends with uh, descendants of the Burr family, and uh, people who were Dutch families from the time, all kinds of interesting people come on my tour. And I encourage people, if you're going to take my tour, and you are descended from someone to send me a note ahead of time, so that I can include their story in the tour for you.
0: What's next for you in terms of research? I'm sure there's still more to uncover.
1: There is, and I never know where things are going to take me. So now I'm, I'm kind of settling into this new spy tour and working on my book about Theodosia. And then we'll kind of see like what doors open from there. I kind of never know. Um, you know, over the years that I keep going in all these interesting directions. So who knows what's next?
0: Are there any other particular locations that you would recommend people visiting?
1: Yes, I would recommend people go out to Setauket. There's a Culper Tour on the north shore of Long Island, to so it, they do a walking tour, a biking tour, and a kayak tour. And most of that town is intact. And they'll tell you the whole story of how the ring operated along the north shore.
0: What about in Lower Manhattan, places that we have not yet talked about?
1: Lower Manhattan. Let's see. You can visit St. Paul's, visit the Commons. Oh, Federal Hall National Memorial right on Wall Street. Giant statue of George Washington there where um, the president took his oath of office. But it also has some interesting things that went on and some other displays in there. Um, A little bit down the street, and they're closed for water damage, but they should be opening soon, is the Museum of American Finance. On the second floor, they have a permanent Hamilton exhibit. So if you're a Hamilton fan, it's a must-see. And if you are up in Harlem, Hamilton's Grange is a wonderful spot to visit.
0: If you literally wanted to walk in the footsteps, if you will, of someone from revolutionary-era New York City, are there still stones, pavement that may still exist from that time?
1: There isn't. Not in Lower Manhattan, unfortunately. It's all new. Even if it looks like cobblestones, they're new cobblestones. So the best we can do is imagine.
0: What were people doing for fun besides hanging out at a Francis Tavern?
1: Oh well you know of course they were drinking and <laughs> brawling uh, but they also did you know they went to balls, parties, dances they swam um, they had horse races on Long Island um, they did some things we kind of might not like you know they had cock fights and dog fights and things like that. In the winter they went sledding and sleigh riding boxing like we have today. A lot of the uh, forerunners of, of the sports we have today Nathan Hale by the way um, was a Big athlete, and he held the long jump record for Yale College for many, many years. So, some of those same um, field and field um, sports that we do today, they were already playing.
0: Karen, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Karen Quinones is the owner and historian of Patriot Tours. More info at PatriotToursNYC.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarkey. Thank you so much for listening.